Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to reflect on your goodness and your grace. God, thank you for an opportunity to hear from um, the song that was just sung, God, that you indeed are with us and that you will carry us through the fire, God, that you will indeed use the trials of life to refine us, to grow us, to mold us and make us into the person that you want us to be. And God, I pray that now as we look to your word, that you would guide us through it. God, that we would have hearts to hear, hearts to understand, and hearts to obey. God, work miraculously, not because of us, but in spite of us. Not for our glory, but for yours, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Zechariah, and today we depart from Zechariah just a bit. We're actually going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3-9, three, three through nine, as Bill read earlier. And the reason that I chose this text is because these passages actually go together quite nicely. Zechariah 13, verses 1-9, through nine, and 1 Peter 1, verses 1-9 through nine, really fit together quite nicely. If you remember last week, we saw God's promise to forgive the people's sin and purify their hearts. He said, I'm going to forgive their sin, I'm going to bring them through these trials and the fire, and I'm going to purify their hearts. And then we saw God's provision, that He was going to do so as they turned to Him in the midst of suffering. And that really is what the first part of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 is all about. The book of 1 Peter is a book of hope. And I actually preached through this text some time ago, a few years ago here, from this very pulpit. In fact, I think 1 Peter 1, I'm pretty sure 1 Peter 1 was the first text I ever preached from this pulpit. 1 Peter 1, verses 1-5. through 5. And then I later preached uh, verses 6-9. through 9. Today I'm going to try to focus in on 3-9, through 9, so a little different, uh, under, or a little different take on the, the text this morning. Same text, but I want to uh, kind of look at it from a little bit of a different angle. But the book of 1 Peter is a book of hope, and it's written to the church in a time when they were in uncharted waters, if you will. If you remember when we worked through 1 Peter, we talked a lot about uncharted waters. The church was unsure of their future, and they needed reassurance that God was in control. And that's the same thing as we think about Zechariah that God's people were facing. They'd been brought back from Babylonian captivity. They were concerned. They didn't know what was going on. And they were in uncharted waters. But God was in control and He assured them of that. You see, in Peter's day, the Christians to whom Peter is writing, they were facing opposition from the world around them. And Peter understood that things were likely going to get a lot worse. So Peter writes this letter to his fellow believers, encouraging them to stand firm in the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And throughout the entire book, Peter comes back to the Gospel again and again. Every theological argument and every instruction that follows in the book of 1 Peter is based on and centered around the Gospel. Because he understands that if these believers are going to stand firm, that is what they must stand firm on, is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So before I get ahead of myself, I want to just reiterate what the Gospel is. The Gospel is God's good news. The word Gospel just means good news. It's the good news that God, in His grace, is calling a people to Himself. That He's forgiving their sins. And the means through which He has done so is by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. That He died on the cross, taking the penalty that we rightly deserved, 
and that He was raised on that third day, and that by faith in Him, trusting in Him, that we will be saved from the right and just punishment for our sin. And the whole book of the Bible, the whole Bible is about that very thing. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points back to Christ's finished work on the cross. But also all of the Bible points forward to Christ returning again to rescue His church once and for all. So let's, look, let's go back and look at our text, the text that Bill read earlier. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So what I want you to see here is I want you to see a couple of things. This is really, I'm not going to focus on verses 1 and 2. I just want to see, I want you to see how this points to the truth of the Gospel. Peter imparts hope and he reminds his readers of their identity in Christ. He says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He says, you are chosen by God from eternity past for salvation. He says, you are exiled. He says, your temporary residence is here on earth, but your permanent residence of the kingdom of heaven. He says, heaven is your home. And he says, this happened in the sanctification of the Spirit that they were set apart for. That's what sanctification means. They were set apart by and are being transformed by the power of and work of the Holy Spirit. And he says all of this is for the purpose of obedience and for sprinkling with His blood. In other words, they are going to be in right relationship. They are in right relationship through Jesus' blood. His shed blood on the cross. And the goal of life is obedience to Christ. So in this, Peter gives a summary of the Gospel. And after this introduction, he erupts in praise in verse 3. So that's really where I want to focus is 3-9. through And that brings us to the first point in our sermon outline. Number one, the provision of the Gospel. Number one, the provision of the Gospel. Another way of saying this is that their hope, their living hope, is rooted in the past. He's pointing to what God has done. So Peter, after reflecting on the good news of the Gospel, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's like a, vo- uh, like a volcano bubbling over. His praise cannot be contained. He understands that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. And therefore, his response is worship. And when we reflect on the Gospel, our response should always be, Blessed be God! Remember, Peter's writing to believers whose lives are already difficult. And they're about to get even more difficult. And yet, Peter begins this letter with praise. Even in difficult times, Peter's response is worship. You've probably all seen the water bottle analogy, but I'll do it again just for the, just for the sake of fun, right? So, um, if I can remember how to do it, isn't that awful? So what is this? This is, this is a water bottle, right? And, and what's happening? Water's coming out. Why is water coming out? Because water's inside the bottle, right? The, the standard response is, 
Well, because you're hitting the bottle. No, water's coming out because water's what's inside of the bottle. If there was coffee in the bottle, coffee would come out. And often what, what comes out of us is not a result of us being provoked. I may provoke the bottle, and we get provoked in our lives, but what comes out of us is the result of what's inside of us. So when we're, worship is what's inside of us, when we're glorying in the gospel of Jesus Christ and troubles come and trials come, when, when those things come into our lives, worship is what should flow out of our heart. And that's what happens to Peter. He says, blessed be God. This is the Peter who is going to get crucified upside down. The Peter who is going to watch the Roman emperor use Christians as candles. They were going to burn Christians at his dinner parties to light the party. And he said, blessed be God, because he understood the Gospel. You see, if we like Peter have been born again, if we've received the glorious gift of salvation that God gives us through His Son, then worship is what will flow out of our hearts. Just as praise and worship flows out of Peter's heart, because that's what's in his heart. You see, Peter has been transformed. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. But he's been made new. He's been born again. He's been changed. And he is being changed by the Gospel. And it's in that provision, the provision of the Gospel, that his heart erupts in worship. So that brings us to the second point in our sermon outline. Having seen the provision of the Gospel, look at number two, the power of the Gospel. Look back at verse 3. Verse 3 again says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter tells us that we are born again into a living hope. Thus the title of the message this morning. A living hope. And this begs the question, what is a living hope? When I think of things that are living, I think of things that are active. Things that are useful. Things that are productive. It's the opposite of dead. And in James 2, you find a description of dead faith. He says, faith that is dead is without works. It's useless. So living by faith, or a living hope, is productive. And it's useful. And when we use the term hope today, I pray that you use it in a much different sense than the Bible uses it. You know, I say things like, I hope lunch is good. Right? Or, I hope that I have a good day today. Or, I hope that I get an afternoon nap in before small group at my house. Or, whatever I'm hoping for. But when the Bible uses the term hope, it conveys confidence. An assurance of something. So that'd be more like, I hope the Patriots win. Right? That's, that's confidence. That's assurance in something. Right, maybe not. So, we use hope in this, this wishful thinking kind of way. Scripture uses hope instead as confident assurance. Peter's talking about productive and useful assurance. And this isn't just hope that one day things are going to be okay. Living hope is not the kind of hope that wants to hunker down and simply survive until Jesus returns. Living hope is a hope that is active. It's hope that produces good works. It's hope that enables us to face trials whatever they are and whenever they come our way. It's hope that's useful. And Peter knows that only such hope comes from the Gospel. The good news of Christ. Peter knows that if these believers are going to be able to stand, they need a living hope that comes from the good news of Jesus. The same is true for us today. You know, some of you are facing financial struggles, relationship struggles, health problems. I know Kim, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this, 
I know that the ladies had, uh, had a time of fellowship the other night and they shared about what was going on in their lives and that there were many, many struggles that were shared. We're all going through various trials. And like Peter's original audience, we too are in a time of uncharted waters and we're in need of God's message of hope. The message of the Gospel. Unfortunately, too many Christians, I believe, have this bunker mentality. They have this idea that they just need to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. They watch the news, they experience trouble at work or trouble at home, and they think that their only hope lies in the fact that one day things will get better. And sometimes they even think the only way that that will happen is when Jesus returns. And yes, Jesus is coming back. And He is going to make all things right. And there is great hope in that. There's future hope. But there's also great hope for today. Don't misunderstand me. Peter's not saying that if you believe the Gospel, that your life will suddenly be all that you dreamt it would be. He's not saying that your boss will suddenly appreciate you. He's not saying you can have your best life now. That some false and empty promise of a glorious and wonderful life as you see it. What Peter is saying is that there's power in the Gospel that enables us to honor God even as we persevere through the trials of this life. What he's saying is that the Gospel produces a hope that is active and productive. So having looked at the provision of the Gospel, the fact that the Gospel is a glorious gift from God that causes our hearts to erupt in praise, and looking at the power of the Gospel, the fact that God has given us the ability to live godly lives today, and we have the encouragement to do so from the Gospel, we now turn to the third point in our sermon outline. The third point is number three, the promises of the Gospel. And these are future. So you can see how the provision is the past, the power is the present, and the promises are the future. So you have this picture of what God did, what God is doing, and what God will do. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture again and again and again. God has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us. Let's read verses 4-5. through He says this, He says, "...to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you." who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here we see that the Gospel promises us an inheritance. An inheritance is wealth that is passed to a family member. As adopted sons and daughters of God, we've been declared the recipients of an inheritance. An inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us. And as we have seen that the Gospel is God's gracious provision for us through which we become His children. And the Gospel gives us power to live for Him while we're here on earth. We also see that the Gospel promises us this future salvation. This final salvation, if you will. And that it will be kept safe by God regardless of what happens here on earth. He says this inheritance is imperishable. Meaning it's enduring. It's, it's going to last forever. It's immortal. It's not decaying. He says it's undefiled. It's pure and perfect. He says it's unfading. It's not losing its brightness. The picture here is of a flower that does not wither. You know, I hate buying flowers. I told Kim when we were dating, I said, I'm never going to buy you flowers. I don't get it. You, you kill something, you bring it home, and it just withers. 
I don't get it. It's fading, it's withering, it's, it's rotting, like literally rotting on your table. And he says, this inheritance that we have, it's enduring forever, it's unsoiled, it's pure, and it's not losing its brightness. It's like a flower that will never fade. I probably have some room to grow in that where I probably should bring home flowers, especially after today, right? But we live in a world where things are just the opposite. God promises us that He promises us something far beyond what this world can offer. See, we live in a world where things are perishing. We live in a world where things are defiled. That they are impure. They're soiled. We live in a world where things are fading. That's why Romans 8.22 teaches us that all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin and longing for the day of redemption. It's a longing for the Gospel promise to be realized. The things of this world, they lose their brightness. They rust. They rot away. That's why when you buy that new car, that new boat, or you build that new house, it eventually disintegrates to nothing. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth because moth and rust will destroy them. He says, ultimately, that shiny new car, that Porsche that I sent a link to Bill the other day, I sent a link to a Porsche accidentally. I just happened to be looking at Porsches on my, on my phone. I sent a link to him, and I meant to send a link to something else. And he said, are you thinking about getting a Porsche? But that Porsche eventually will be somebody's lawn ornament. And I, I apologized and said, sorry, that wasn't meant for you. I didn't mean to send that. I didn't explain that. It's because I was looking at, anyway, I was looking at Porsches. I'm not going to buy a Porsche. <laughs> God says that our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. And that should grab our attention. You see, because the Gospel promises far greater than anything this world could ever offer. So now that we've considered the provision of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, and the promises of the Gospel, let's look at verses 6-9 through and get into our real sermon. Verses 6-9 through to see that Peter continues on to talk about these things, the provision, the power, and the promises of the Gospel. But he does so with regard to trials. He does so in relation to the trials and suffering that we face. So, our first point, if you will, for verses 6-9 through nine, is that trials point us to the provision of the Gospel. Trials point us to that provision. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. He says this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we see Peter saying, in this, in the Gospel, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, you've been distressed by various trials. Peter's saying that even in the midst of trials, we can rejoice. And these are easy words to say from the pulpit. I get it. It's very easy for me to say, in the midst of trials, rejoice! So you have cancer. Rejoice! So you have marital problems. Rejoice! So you're bankrupt. Rejoice. It's very easy to say these words standing here. When Monday morning comes and those trials are real, it's hard to say those trials. I get that. So I don't say them lightly. But nonetheless, Peter says them. And Peter does so because he's pointing back to the Gospel. He says, 
you need to remember that these trials that we face, they're temporary. But not only does he say they're temporary, he says they're necessary. He says trials are necessary. Look at the text. First, let's consider that they're temporary. He says the trials we face are temporary, and he does so by saying now for a little while. In order to understand this, we need to understand that the phrase in a, for a little while is a relative statement. If I say that I had hiccups for six months, I watched a girl on TV one time, she had hiccups for like three years. If I said I had hiccups for, for six months, you would not be saying that's a little while. That's a long time to have hiccups. But if you said I'd been working at a new job for six months, you might say that's a little while. It's a relative term. So time is relative. And the point is that in light of eternity, our trials are brief. They're temporary. We may struggle with some trials for years or even decades. We may even have trials that last our entire lives. But in light of eternity, that time is short. It's like my friends that I talked about whose little boy never never grew and is isn't able to feed himself or go to the bathroom himself or take care for himself in any way. As hard as it is to say to them, these trials are temporary, these trials are short, in light of eternity they are. And they seem very, very long to them. But in light of eternity, these trials are temporary and short. They're but a moment. That's why James 4.14 tells us that our lives are but a vapor that's here one day and gone the next So Peter points us to the Gospel by reminding us that we as followers of Jesus Christ face an eternity with Him in heaven. Eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years. Amazing Grace says, we've only just begun. Can you imagine? And we we think 10,000 years and we've only just begun and the trials of this life, they may last 60, 70, 80 years. But in light of that time frame, they're just temporary. Now let's look on. And Peter says that the trials we face are necessary. Peter's not saying here that things happen sometimes. Just, that they're just a, God is a victim of circumstance. That things happen outside of God's sovereign control. Instead, he's saying that sometimes God deems that trials are necessary. This idea is consistent throughout the book of 1 Peter. Look just a couple of pages ahead to 1 Peter 3.17. He says this, He says, For it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. There's an aspect where God allows suffering in the lives of His children. He goes on in 1 Peter 4.19 and he says this, He says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator and doing what is right. That God allows suffering. And I know that's hard. And I'm not going to try to understand that fully or even justify that. But Scripture says this is true. That God allows suffering. So we do wrestle with, why would God will that we go through trials? When we get back to our text, we begin to see A bit of an answer. Look at verses 6-7 through again. Peter says that trials may be necessary. He says, so that the proof of your faith may result in praise and glory and honor. You see, trials are like fire that melts away the impurities of gold. 
They melt away the impurity of our hearts. Trials serve to prove and strengthen our faith. So when trials come, the object of our trust is revealed. Now I want to be careful here, because not everybody goes through a trial and has their faith strengthened. Instead, what trials do is they show where our faith lies. Some people go through a trial and they remain steadfast and strong in their trust in the Lord. Others may question their faith, but the trial eventually causes them to cling closer to Jesus and their faith is strengthened and proven. And I'm sure we've all met Christians who call themselves, or people who call themselves Christians, but when they go through a trial, these trials reveal that their faith is in something other than God. And they eventually, they abandon the truth of Scripture. Peter is saying that these trials are necessary to strengthen and confirm our faith. I know this is difficult to wrap our heads around and embrace. Am I saying that God is the author of suffering or a struggling marriage or persecution? Well, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin. What I am saying is that God allows some circumstances into our lives that are difficult and painful. And the result is is one of us persevering in faith to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John Piper says it this way. He says, in verses 6-7, through the distresses themselves have a part in getting us ready to enjoy the inheritance to the fullest measure possible. In other words, he goes on and says, we don't just look beyond the distresses to the sure hope. We look at God's design in the distresses and see how God is working the distresses together for our good. You see, God is working all things together to make us more like Jesus. And that includes trials. And the end result is that we receive praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the question is, who's receiving praise and glory and honor? Is it us or is it Jesus? And I think the answer in this text is both. There's tons of references to us receiving praise and glory and honor because of our faith. However, our faith here, I want you to understand, is a noun, not a verb. It's not so much something that we do as it is something that we possess or that we own. It's not an action so much as it is a thing received as a gift from God. We don't receive glory and honor and praise for what we do, but instead we receive glory and honor and praise for what we have. This is amazing if you think about it. This means that we can receive praise and glory and honor because of our faith, and our faith is a gift from God. So ultimately, God is further glorified. So what's amazing about the Gospel. The Gospel, in the Gospel, God calls us to something we can't do. God says, be holy. And by His grace, He makes us holy. He makes us something we're not, and then He rewards us for being holy. He rewards us for the gift that He gave us. That's a good deal, folks. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So trials point us to the provision of the Gospel. We need to move on. Trials show us our need for the hope of the Gospel. They remind us that as followers of Jesus, we need to cling to Him and the provision of the Gospel. But also, secondly, trials point us to the power of the Gospel. Look at verse 8 with me. Peter says this. He says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice 
with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He says, in the midst of these trials, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Literally, higher than speech or more than words can capture and full of glory. This is more than being caught up in the moment. More than being moved or speechless. This great rejoicing is an ongoing action that should be part of every believer's life. And it should lead us to always live with a heart so full of joy for what God has done for us in the Gospel that we can't even put words to it. This is not going to some charismatic experience and getting all hyped up and leaving. This is joy that is long and lasting. This is words beyond, this is beyond being able to express with words what God has done for us. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you understand the depth of your sin and the glories of Christ, then you can understand what I'm saying. You understand, I don't even know how to express how great God is for what He's done. It's beyond expression. This joy extends far beyond happiness. My, my friend, Pastor Phil Neiswanger, says, happiness is cheap. It's temporary and gone in an instant. Joy is not. It's permanent and Christ paid a lot for it. You see, there's a difference between happiness and joy found in the Scriptures. Joy is something more than happiness. It refers to a strong, deep-down feeling of gladness. However, I want to be careful here because I think Christians sometimes, they they try to completely disconnect these terms when indeed they're they're related. One can experience happiness without joy. As an unbeliever, I experienced happiness. However, true joy should bubble up inside you and cause you to be regularly happy. I'll tell you, it gets on my nerves when we sing, I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And we're like, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my... Like, be happy. If Christ died for you and you got the joy in your heart, then it should bubble out in happiness. You can't say, I'm miserable, but I got joy. Uh, I got joy. No, you don't. You need to reflect more on what Christ did for you. I'm not saying we, we are thrilled with every circumstance in our lives. But it doesn't mean we're miserable either. Joy produces happiness. Happiness should bubble up outside of us because of the joy that is deep inside of us. You see, there's power in the Gospel. Not just power for tomorrow, but power to live and have great joy today. And this joy, Peter says, is a result of the fact that even though we have not seen Him, we love Him. And even though we do not see Him now, we believe in Him. In other words, even though we haven't physically seen Jesus like the apostles did, we believe the Gospel. And therefore, we love Him and we trust Him and that produces great joy in us. We look at the world around us and we see people looking for circumstances to make them happy. When their circumstances, when they undesirably change or when they end their happiness ends. Because their happiness is dependent on fleeting events. But while there may be trials around us as believers, we must realize that our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Our joy comes from believing and trusting in Jesus. Peter is showing us that trials point us to the power of the Gospel in the midst. And in the midst of that, we have the opportunity to run to Him and love and trust Him all the more as we walk through these trials. 
So having seen that trials point us to the provision of the Gospel, what God has done, and trials point us to the power of the Gospel, what God is doing, let's consider lastly the fact that trials point us to the promise, the promises of the Gospel. Trials point us to what God will do. While we have hope for today, and we know that God is working all things together to make us more like Christ, we ultimately know that our final rescue will be when we are united with Christ in heaven. Peter looks to this hope and its promise in verse 9. He says this. He says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The word obtaining here is in the present tense. And it could literally be read, presently receiving for yourselves the salvation of your souls. Peter's remembering the promise of the Gospel. The promise that God is currently rescuing us from the curse of sin and death and that one day we will be ultimately and finally rescued. Folks, that is the message of Zechariah. That is the Gospel given 500 years before the Gospel was made clear. That is the Gospel of Zechariah is God has done mighty things in the past, God is doing mighty things now, and God's going to do mighty things in the future. Trust in God. And as Zechariah preached that Gospel, so does Peter to us as well. Looking at what Christ has done, what He is doing, and what He will do in the future. Because of the difficulty of this life, we long for something greater than we have now. Praise God for that. That oftentimes the trials cause us to long for something more. I don't know about you, but I'd be awfully content in this life if it wasn't for trials. And I think sometimes when we have a lack of trials, we get very, very content living here. I went to work for a company. This is way off topic. Or it's not off topic. I went to work for a company when I was finishing Bible college. And they paid me an astronomical salary to work 10 days a month. They, they approached me and said, we'll pay you this salary. I mean, it wasn't astro- it was astronomical for 10 days a month. So they paid me the salary to work 10 days a month and I, so I could finish Bible college while working and support my family. It was like a dream come true. And they said, you can pick which 10 days you want to work. right? But the thing is, there were no trials. I got really comfortable. I actually got close to the end of Bible college and thought, Pastor Schmaster. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is awesome. Ten days a month. And the company went bankrupt. (laughs) And I I was let go along with everybody else. You see, without trials, we get very comfortable. And the point of me saying that is, I was comfortable. And I needed to be pushed out of that comfort zone to long for something greater than what I had then and there. God often uses the difficulties, the trials of this life, so that we can long for heaven. And that's not bad. But we need to long for heaven while not forgetting that His power is active and alive in our lives now. So by way of review, we've seen the provision of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, and the promise of the Gospel, and how trials point us to those truths. So here's the question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives. How do we take these truths that there's the, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do, and recognize that the trials of life point us to those truths? Well, number one, when we sin, I want to encourage you this. When we sin, may we long for God to rescue us. 
And may we remember the future promise of rescue in the Gospel. God, I know what You have done for me. I know what You are doing for me. You've given me the power to live today. And I know that You ultimately will rescue me from this sin. You will rescue me from this body of death. It's not just when we sin, but also when others sin against us. When others sin against us, may we long for God to rescue us. May we long for Gospel power in our lives. And may we remember the promise of rescue in the Gospel. That not only is He going to rescue us and give us power to endure, the strength to endure and make us more like Christ today, but there is an ultimate and final rescue coming. And not just when we sin or others sin against us, but when any trial comes our way, may we long for God to rescue us and may we remember the promise of rescue that is provided for in the Gospel of Christ. You see, what I'm saying is when trials come our way, I pray that we don't lose heart. But instead, we see that God is sovereign. He's in control. And He has allowed them to come our way so that we might run to the Gospel. And may we let those trials remind us of the provision of the Gospel, that God loves us and He's offered for us forgiveness. He's offered us forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. May those trials remind us of the power of the Gospel, that as believers we have been given the strength to face the trials of this life, knowing that God will use them for our good and for His glory in our lives. And may we remember the promises of the Gospel, that we are being rescued from sin now. And that God will not forsake or forget us. But instead, He has promised an ultimate rescue from this world and promised us heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that we would have a correct view of the trials that we face. God, that we would be eager to remember what You have done what You are doing, and what You will do in the future. God, I praise You for Your past grace, Your present grace, and Your future grace. I praise You for the provision of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, and the promise of the Gospel. God, help us to live in light of these truths. Help us to endure, to grow to be more like Your Son Jesus day by day, and to persevere until the end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.